Well, hello. Yeah, there we go. Well, maybe you've been thinking recently uh, this thought. Jesus, I just want a sign from you. Uh, maybe you've heard, you've watched, or maybe you've even uh, you know, read about some of the outpourings that have happened uh, that's coming from Hughes, they have come from Hughes Auditorium at Asbury's Revival Outpouring or Awakening or whatever terminology you want to use around it. You're, you're just saying simply, maybe wondering, Spirit, would you just blow into my space? I want that renewal that Deshaun was talking about. Uh, maybe you don't know anything about it. But in your situation, you have been asking, maybe even uh, on the edge of telling God what kind of sign he should deliver to you. Are you real, God? Will you heal me? Are you really there? Right? We, we simply are a people that like to touch and see uh, things in life. And there's nothing wrong with that. There absolutely is nothing wrong with that. But this passage uh, tells us that when we take it over an edge, uh, we take it into a place and a space that's just not healthy and right and respectful to God. The writer of Hebrews writes regarding those who have died on God's side. If you look at Hebrews 11, and they leaned in and were living in him, it says this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And what about the interaction between Jesus and Thomas after Jesus' resurrection? You remember? Uh, Jesus uh, is walking around walking through things, right? He shows up, and his, the disciples say to Thomas, hey, Jesus was here. He says, I'm not, I'm not going to see it. I'm not going to believe it until I see it. And a week later, Jesus appears to Thomas and, and tells Thomas, put your fingers here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet have believed. While Jesus appears to Thomas, Jesus speaks to those who demand a sign from him. Blessed are those who have not seen, yet still believe. This is where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 12, starting with the 38th verse. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, if you've been watching or reading with us uh, through Matthew, and you'll recognize that we are taking it uh, passage by passage, we're not sure of the complete proximity to the events previous to this. But if they were, uh, you have to kind of go, Pharisees and teachers of the law, are you not looking at what's going on? Do you not see what has been happening? In fact, earlier in chapter 12, if you have your Bibles or you want to open the one in front of you to page, I think it's 690, uh, you'll find yourself in Matthew chapter 12. A demon-possessed man has his sight restored and his vocal cords are sort of, I mean, there's signs everywhere. And Jesus has, before this, has given them very willingly signs after signs after signs. 
So what is it that they're asking for that Jesus, um, we're going to get to it, seems to be resistant from? They're asking for a sign that Jesus is the Messiah, that he truly is from God. These guardians of practice, the Pharisees, and the truth uh, the, of, and truth, the teachers of the law, wanted something more from Jesus than the wholeness that he was giving to people. Can you imagine? Somebody is healed in front of you, and then you go, hey, Jesus, uh, one more on our, our command. One more on our demand. They, like Thomas, had been shown his origin. He was from God. He was proving it over and over again. This contemptuous nature of the inquirer is addressed by Jesus with an understandable directness to the Pharisees, teachers of the law, and the generation of people described in this passage. He says, he answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus is very clear and very direct with the words wicked and adulterous, not words you would want somebody to say about you, eh? Jesus is simply not in favor of the signs that they were asking for. Their reason was is what Jesus was addressing and calling them wicked and adulterous. Let's clarify. What are these two words and where do they originate from? Wicked, this is a strong word. We've already said that. Uh, We have to remember that Satan was the first person in Matthew to demand a sign from Jesus. How would you like to be associated with him? That's exactly what Matthew is doing. He's drawing a line and saying, you're demanding, as Satan did, from me. And the origin finds itself in evil and Satan himself. Adulterous? There's a dominant theme in Scripture. It can't be uh, wiped away. It's the one of a bride and a groom. And the type of people who demand a sign are the types of people who do not remain faithful because fidelity is based on what satisfies them. Their fidelity, when they demand it, is based on their their satisfaction in the moment. Uh, Those who need and demand a sign are people whose love and loyalty is based on what satisfied them then in that moment. You may know that, right? Children tend to uh, be this way. Faith is fickle for this generation. Since they demand a sign, Jesus declares they'll get one sign. It will be the sign of Jonah. Hmm. So what is the story of Jonah? If you don't remember, it's the prophet Jonah is called by God to a people who are enemies of God and his very people. To which Jonah quickly, as we read the story, the very short story, says no. He says, I'm not going. And literally travels in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Due to a storm and his knowledge of his own disobedience, he is tossed into the sea, swallowed by a big fish, and three, after three days is uh, vomited up on the shore uh, onto dry land. It was at this point that, that Jonah says, you know, I, I, I think I'll go. I, I think I'll head to Nineveh now. Which is exactly what he does preaches the short sermon of simply five words, and you're wondering, Steve, can you just pare it down a little bit? 
I get it. I get it. Yes, folks, five words. The whole city confesses and repents and wears traditional sackcloth of mourning. In fact, I think the passage of the scripture talks about even the animals wore mourning cloth. I mean, everybody repents. Everybody turns from what they were doing. So what is it, the sign that, that, uh, that Jesus is saying that they'll get? Well, there, there could be three. Uh, it could be the death, of, the death of Jesus, right? We know about that. And that Jonah being in the fish, right? The, the idea of death. Uh, it could be the resurrection of Jesus, right? This idea of Jonah uh, being, being swallowed and then vomited up. That's, by the way, that's kind of the illusions here. Or it could be simply this, the mirroring of Jesus preaching to bring repentance. Because, I mean, Jonah followed suit. Five words, and the whole city repents. Not just confesses, folks, right? I mean, repentance turns from what they're doing. While we might want to separate the three of these, I don't think that that's the effect that Jesus was looking for. It's the whole thing. It's the whole package. The life and preaching are the pure sign of who Jesus is. I mean, they're having it right in front of them. They're seeing it, they're experiencing it, and then they're what? Doubting it. While the cross and resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign that Jesus is the Son of God, when, when they experience him going to the cross and they will hear the stories, they will experience the whole thing. This, this is the sign of Jonah. So these leaders will get the sign they're looking for, but could it be too late for some of them? I mean, seriously, could it be just a bit too late? Their stubbornness of heart, their resistance of change and transformation and repentance. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Wow. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. So to the Pharisees and the teachers who are questioning him for a sign, Jesus provides two warnings from the Old Testament and a parable story that we're going to walk through in the next few minutes. The first story of warning is that of the Ninevites. If you don't know who these Ninevites are, besides the story I've told you before, they were a mean people, um, very mean. Uh, they would be an mar- army that would march in and take whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted. They were that large, that looming, and that powerful. These people were just simply not nice. They were broken and sinful people. Enemies, listen to this, enemies of Israel's and foreigners living in the land. Right? Well, it's true if you didn't know that. They, were not, they, were part, they weren't part of the covenant that God made with Israel. They're, they're outside of the covenant. This is vastly important to us to understand. And important to us to see not only what Jesus is saying in the moment, but also what happened then there prior to Jesus. The second warning is Jesus telling, uh, tells of the queen of the south or queen Queen Sheba, uh, she, Solomon was ru- ruling at the time, and he's the wisest man that lived, and 
she travels to Solomon at great expense and great cost to herself from a far, far distance, taking spices and golds and precious stones to test Solomon with hard questions, right? He's the wise man. He's the, it's spread out, you know? And once she arrives, she plies Solomon with her questions. She's wondering what he will say, and, and she received his responses. And this is the interesting thing. She's not of Israel. She's not even part of it, but she receives what Solomon has shared, the wisdom of God. And guess what she does? She worships God. She worships God. Now, remember, she's not part of the covenant. She's traveled from a far, far away. Some think even as far away as Ethiopia at the time. She too worshiped Yahweh. She was an outsider. There is a point Jesus is making here. Where are the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba on the Day of Judgment? What does Jesus say? They are on the side of the Lord. They're in the side of the Lord. The gospel and the good news took these outsiders and made them insiders. These people that were not covenant keepers, but were adopted in. Beautiful. That's the heart of the message. That's the gospel story right there. Good news that takes people on the outsides and brings them in the kingdom. Excuse me. This is the beauty of the gospel, that people would respond with repentance and follow so, friend, do you feel like you're on the outside? You're looking in? You're not part of the house party? Jesus' message, the good news, is for you. It's always been for you, whether it's been Old Testament or New Testament. It has always been for you to come close. You see, Jesus is saying that they, the queen and the Ninevites, will stand in judgment over this generation. Can you imagine Think of your greatest nemesis right now. Okay, you all have them. They may be figments of your imagination or real, and they, they then get to judge you. You get it? Why do the Ninevites and the queen get to do this? Because they listened to the message from the Lord and they responded. It's as simple as that. It's as simple and as clean as that. Jonah spoke, the Ninevites repented and followed. Solomon shared the wisdom from the Lord and, and the queen received it from the Lord and worshipped the God of Yahweh in a time when, well, in the same time that we live, we have multiple gods. Ah, oh. so where will they be? They will be the ones judged where will the teachers and the Pharisees in this generation be? They will be the ones judged by the, the outsiders, quote unquote, because they're not outsiders in this case, because they listen. Why? I love this. Moses wanted to know God's name. Moses wanted to know God's name, and, and God's like, uh, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you my name. But it's not like Tom Smith. It's this. It's Exodus 34. The compassionate, gracious God, this is his name, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. 
yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. If you go to, if you go to Exodus 34, you'll find look, Moses is asking for God's name, and he's like, it's not contained in a name because my character is greater than that. It's merciful, it's gracious, it's loving. Jesus, in this passage, is attempting to give a warning to those who have been students of the Torah. I mean, students of the Torah. In fact, uh, probably more than that. Some of them are PhDs, with multiple PhDs, if you can compute that in your mind. And they've been awaiting the Messiah. And he's saying, you need to heed this very sharp warning and the invitation. Because Jesus always is inviting Even in the warning, he's always saying, look, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, receive my invitation. Unless they repent, Jesus says, there will be the worst fate for them. And to make sure that they grasp the weight of this moment, Jesus shares with them another warning using a parable. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through an arid place of seeking rest and, and does not find it. Then it says... I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, put in order. Then it goes in, goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked, evil than itself. And they go in and they live. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this wicked generation. So, uh, as we know, Jesus has no problem with what we would call the supernatural. I'm not sure what he would call it. With the supernatural world intersecting with our realm, he has no problem with this. I mean, he, he just healed a demon-possessed man. He, he brought health and healing and just laid his hands on him. I mean, can you imagine so bringing the God's kingdom to bear on the realm of evil, on the evil earth, is a, is a bearing, is, is his sign of his divine nature. This is it. And we can find ourselves wondering in wild directions about this passage. I'm sure you've had those conversations in Bible studies. Like, huh, I wonder what an exorcism is, right? Or, you yeah, know, why, how did this happen? Well, we're not treated to that kind of uh, thought in this passage. In fact, that's not what the passage is about. Jesus is saying what what everybody has seen in this generation who has seen him and have been around him have received a glimpse of what the kingdom is like. They have been, by grace, a house that has been swept clean. So if they've received Jesus in these moments, right, their house is swept clean. The sick are healed, powerful messages are received, and people are living into them in this moment. And yet a warning is given to them. And this is the warning. You can be changed by Jesus, and it seems rather hard to understand. I get it. But this is what it says. If you can be changed by Jesus, and yet you do, if you do not pursue Jesus, his teaching, and his life, those that left will take up residence, and you'll be at a worse fate. If you live for him and continue to change your interior heart and life and mind and soul, then you'll fill it with the life that he has asked. So the house has been swept clean, but it needs to be filled. It needs to be filled. It's empty. 
it's empty. And he's saying to this, this generation of teachers and Pharisees and this generation, be careful. Be careful. Follow hard after Jesus. We've talked about this in the past, this whole idea that the dust of Jesus, if you were a student of a rabbi in this time, the, you would be eat, literally eating the dust of the rabbi. That's how close you wanted to be to him. That his teaching, his mannerisms, what he said, what he did, you wanted to replicate perfectly. And that's what Jesus is inviting us into. Uh, Leon Morris states in his commentary of Matthew, they have been confronted with divine power. And if they tried to live empty lives, lives that did not replace evil by the presence of the Holy Spirit, there was nothing before them but the grimmest of prospects. So while Jesus is delivering this message, can you imagine? He's delivering this pretty heavy message. I mean, there's weight in this room, by the way, if you can't feel it. He's just like, are you kidding me? Is that what it means? This message is being telephoned into the house where Jesus is teaching. Someone, your mother and brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Can you imagine? You're standing up speaking, you're in a class, and somebody runs a message to you and says, hey, they want to talk to you. The family are on the outside of the house and have not come into where he was teaching. We're not told why they are there to, hear, uh, to talk to him. In other passages, we are, but in this one, we're not. His response is this. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said. And he reaches out, and can you imagine, the disciples were within probably arm's reach of him because that's the way it was done. And he reaches out and points to them. He says, these are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Can you, can you just feel the, the intensity in the house? Probably not. But you thought your holiday gathering was tension-filled. This is incredible. You could just cut it with a knife. This is wild. But we have to take a couple of, step back, take a couple of steps back and say, let's consider Jesus and his culture, not in our culture, in our time, in our dime, right? He was Jewish, he was also a rabbi. This would have put him in the place of a category of thinking very, very highly of his family. And he did. The Torah would have reinforced him in this. The Ten Commandments, or as they would have known it, the Ten Words, was the very fabric of their lives. So, right? Honor your father and mother was in that. There's no ands if or buts. So in this ancient culture of which we do not live and we do not understand, we can't even imagine, I don't think we can, even in the closest of our family's ties, their loyalty was to their mother, father, and siblings, wherever you were born out of. And again, this is a strange concept in, a, in our current cultural setting. Many of us think about moving away from our families when we get older for vast reasons. 
In fact, we think of our, our romantic or our marriage relationships as the closest relationships in our lives. But for this culture and time, the closest relationships would have been their family, as I said. They would have ditched their wife in a heartbeat. Sorry, they would have if mother, father, or siblings needed them. And when I say ditch, I don't mean a divorce. I mean their preference would have been for. Before we go much further, we need to understand that Jesus wasn't saying that he wouldn't care for his siblings because we know, we know in, I think it's in John's gospel, but forgive me if it's wrong, you know, he was on the cross, right? And he made sure his mom was taken care of. He was tender to his parents, but he was sending another point. It's the point we've been pointing out all the way along. That our hearts and our lives need to be changed from the inside out. That those who follow after him are truly those who do the will. If, if Jesus was to come to fulfill the law and not abolish it, Jesus, Jesus is fulfilling it. He's, he's literally fulfilling it by saying, yes, I do love my mom and dad. Or, you know, his dad's probably dead by that point, but his mom, right? I love my siblings, but even more than that, I love those who do the will of the Father. And so there is kind of this distancing between family who do the will of the Father and family who do not do the will of the Father. And Jesus is making his loyalty clear. That not familiarity, that familiarity about him will not be enough to participate in the kingdom. Think about that. We, we, know, the, we know the common proverb, right? Familiar, familiarity breeds contempt. Dallas Willard has a little different take on it. The major problem with the invitation now is precisely over-familiarity. Familiar, familiarity breeds unfamiliarity. Unsuspected unfamiliarity and then contempt People think they have heard the invitation. They think they have accepted it or rejected it. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, unfamiliarity, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. It's likely the very people who thought they knew Jesus may not have actually known him at all. Sobering thought. So who's in the kingdom? And Jesus states that those who do the will of the Father uh, do the will of the Father. Therefore, anyone, Matthew 7, 24, uh, Sermon on the Mount, therefore, anyone who hears the words of mine and puts them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Those who hear the teaching of Jesus and put it into practice, those are part of the kingdom. Uh, just reinforced by Matthew twelve fifty, right? He's repeating himself. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I think Jesus is into this repetitive thing so we would catch it. It's not a new message. It's just a message over and over again. Seek the kingdom. Do the will. Be one of mine. But a wonderful word choice by Jesus in this passage. Did you pick it up? Whoever. Whoever. What about the sinner? Whoever. What about my enemy? Whoever. What about the foreigner? Whoever. What about the privileged? Whoever. What about the poor? Whoever. Uh, what comes to your mind? 
You can just put whoever after it. Because it's whoever does the will of the Father, right? The kingdom is open to whoever will do the will of the Father. Jesus in this conversation is attempting to get the attention of the Pharisees and anyone who has ears, eyes, to receive the invitation. The Son of God is the Son of God. Right before them. And will soon be the life, death, and resurrection, which they would see and we get to read. The sign of God is the repentive, receptive individual, uh, individual to the works of what has already happened. The message of Jonah, the answers of Solomon, right? The sign of God is the house being swept clean. But the warning is that the house has been swept clean. clean. What are you going to do with it? The interior work of the heart and life, following that keeps the house in shape, the house of our hearts, our minds, our very behaviors. So what does this mean in next steps? What can we learn and live from this passage? Let me ask this question before we get uh, deep into it. Have we asked Jesus to prove himself? Have you asked Jesus to prove himself recently? The Lord is not opposed to us asking in prayer from the rich storehouses of which he has. It's when we move into the realm of demanding that God should do something because we demand it. That's the spirit of the Pharisees here. When we're in a posture of our lives of simply being with God and hungering for him, as Deshaun was talking about the Asbury revival, it's just being, just wanting God not what he can do for you, right? For some of us who are married in this room uh, or have relationships of that nature, we, we've, we come to realize that just being with the one that we love is probably all the greatest gift that we can ever have. It's not what they can do for us, and yet we have troubles with that. <laughs> like, really? Supper's not ready yet, you know? But the reality is, that when we come back to it, it's like, oh, it's so, just so comfortable just being, right? Oh, it's the posture of the heart of hungering for him. The wicked and adulterous generation Pharisees in this passage is contrasted to the receptive and repentant queen of the south and the Ninevites. Can you imagine? The Ninevites, uh, by the way, they didn't always stay repentant and it was they were annihilated and things changed for them. But in that moment, they were. The Pharisees had repeated signs which were being replayed through conversation, conversation vines of the time. They didn't have telephones, folks. I I don't know if they had, you know, whatever. But I am sure they heard. And they were still demanding, like, show us. The question becomes, would it have been enough? I mean, if if we're demanding a sign right now, would it be enough for us? Because once we get to that one, wouldn't we want another one? Isn't that the, the kind of the, the kid's story if you give a mouse a cookie? Right? Because we're human. I mean, the, kids' books are great uh, to tell us about how we are, right? Because it's true. I can't, eat, I can't stop at one potato chip. It just doesn't work. I think it's the same with science. And when we get to this place of demanding. Jesus was the sign. He was right before them. 
He would give them a sign of Jonah, but would it be too late? See, God often shows up in the daily and quiet of our lives and in our community. You know, you know he, he's showing up in the person who gives you the call. And sends you the note in the mail or a text, brings you a meal, prays with you, invites you to join them in the journey with, and f- with Jesus, with them. You see, it's, it's in this life that we, we start to conform our hearts into Jesus' likeness. And this is what he repeated a couple of times. The sign of Jonah was before them, and then now there was something greater was here, and he was there. Are we the same way? Ah, oh, is there something else? So do we find contentment with his life, death, and resurrection? His resurrection is his teaching and the the gift of the Spirit? I mean, seriously. I mean, I think that's a, I mean, maybe we do, but maybe we need to reflect more. Jesus not only cleans the house, but his life is, life lived fills the house. And I get it, it's not always easy to live that life. Whoever Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. So have you been demanding or asking God to prove himself lately? There's a place of confession and repentance before a holy God who has already shown himself. It could be that your heart is clean, but it's empty and you have not been filling it with the practices of Jesus or the practices of the kingdom. Outside of the house looks good. Everybody says so. But what does the Spirit of God say about the interior of the house? Is it in danger of being overtaken by seven other wicked spirits? Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for these uh, these direct conversations that you have with the Pharisees because we can place ourselves right right there. And Father, I pray that your spirit would put us right there. That you would, Father, help us to understand what it means uh, to have a clean house but also to fill the house to conform our lives after your life. Lord, lead us into that life that gives life, that whoever does the will of my Father. Maybe you're here this morning and you didn't realize or you've come to recognize in this moment that that, that Jesus um, clearly is the Son of God. You may have been even doubting, uh, questioning, and maybe even demanding a proof. Maybe that's all the case. But you've come this morning and you've realized that, man, he, uh, Father, he, you've, you've shown me the Son. And the Son will set me free. The truth will set me free. If that's you this morning, I just invite you to pray this prayer. Uh, that The prayer doesn't do it. Um, let me just tell you, it, 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 words from a sincere heart, uh, that's there. But 
but it's your willingness to confess and repent and, and to be as the Ninevites, to be as queen, the queen of the south, and to be as one who desires to do the will of the Father. But maybe you have yet to say yes to Jesus and follow him into his kingdom. This is your prayer today, if that's you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, grace, and found, love found in you through Jesus. Save me and forgive me from my sins. Turn my wicked and adulterous heart back to you. I choose, I give you my life and choose to follow, love, and live for you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me into your family. Just as you open the door to the Ninevites, you open the door to the queen, and you open the door to the world, you have opened the door to me. Thank you for your son's sacrifice on the cross and the empty grave that gives me a freedom today. Lord, I accept it. Pray this in Jesus' wonderful name.